This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This, today I'm going to be talking with you about symbolic play, and I'm very grateful to the illustrator Barry Blitt for doing a February cover for The New Yorker called Origin Story, and we'll come back to this later in this presentation. Before I get to the substance of the presentation, I want to acknowledge some colleagues and also thanks. So talking with Ann Russin and Dick Byrne via email helped a lot. I relied on reading and rereading Alison Jolly, and I really am grateful to Rich Wargo with technical support. The presentation is to introduce you to play and remind you what you know about play, but more importantly, how we define symbolic play. Also remind us that sometimes people describe Homo sapiens as the playful um, species of Homo. And so briefly, I'll talk about how play characterizes and is sort of universally attributed to our species. And then the bulk of the presentation will be looking at evidence for symbolic play in great apes. If you go to the dictionary, play has lots of definitions, either as a verb or as a noun, but this first definition is one that you frequently encounter. And the thing that you might notice is that it's focusing on activity that is viewed as, as not serious or practical. But if you're an evolutionary biologist, a developmental psychologist, I think you recognize that play is essential for cognitive, social, and linguistic development. And the payoff is huge. I, I think that it yields an individual that is far more behaviorally flexible. If we start looking at the functions of play, we can see that lots of folks say, well, play is about practice. Well, yeah, you can learn to be agile. You can figure out what your reproductive repertoire is. You can also maybe get a crack at taking care of an infant. And equally important, you can start exploring the world through objects. Play can also create a context in which you can experience extremes without the kind of pressure of a real threat to you. And maybe it also functions as a kind of psychological or cognitive reestat in terms of your responsivity. Um, I would also argue that it is going to scaffold so many of the behaviors um, and the behavioral challenges that, that an organism will, will encounter later on in its life. Um, it also allows you to continue to learn. Um, individuals who play a lot um, have a long juvenile developmental period, and those are also the big-brained animals, bigger-brained for their, for their given body size. When we're looking for how to recognize play, often we can see this wonderful open mouth play face, but it doesn't always have to be there. And you can see this play face in either um, a social or solitary context. Often play is about exaggerating, whether it's a body movement or a psychological process. Many times when we see an organism basically engaging in a kind of cyclical or repetitive pattern and coupling it with one or both of these, um, we can often say, oh, that organism is playing. And then this idea of restraint, when particularly social, um, an individual may be doing what we call self-handicapping. Obviously, you could say it's a, a play, it's a, a rough and tumble play bout, 
Um, and it looks like play biting, but in fact, the skin is not being broken. And you can also calibrate your body size versus your conspecific. Going back to foundational scholars, Wolfgang Kurler and, and Gregory Bateson, I think it's useful to pay attention to Kurler's idea of serious play. And this young man is showing us exactly what he had in mind. Um, these are very deliberate movements. Sometimes you'll see this compressed mouth, sometimes the protruding lower lip. And Bateson, Gregory Bateson, tried to think about play and individuals um, engaging in play as framing reality as separate, uh, basically their, their game and their play behavior as out of reality or from the sort of um, real-time uh, experience. So what is symbolic play? Well, this young man is showing us precisely that this apple is clearly a telephone. And we look for definitions of symbolic play from developmental psychologists, and we watch children use objects, actions, or ideas. And in many cases, we label it either symbolic play or imaginative or pretend play. And this pretend object play is something that I think will come to our attention when we start looking at the great ape evidence. Now, coming to our own species, and I can't spend much time on this, but I want to just remind you, as I said earlier, we're sometimes characterized as the playful species of hominin. A Dutch historian, in fact, wrote a book called Homo Ludens, in which he makes the case that play is critical and or foundational to human culture. More recently, we can look to the Human um, Relations Area Files, um, which is now an e-database, where we're fundamentally looking across um, cultures for how anthropologists record various kinds of data. And in, in this um, enterprise, games and sports and the like are cultural universals. Lastly, Donald Brown, a member of CARTA, wrote a lovely book in 1991 called Cultural Universals, and along with many other um, patterns, um, he points out the ubiquity of play in all cultures in the ethnographic record. So let's get to the evidence for symbolic play, if it is, if it is there in great apes, and point to some examples. I'm going to be talking about orangs, gorillas, and pan. The bulk of the data will come from pan. Um, the information is ranging over seven plus decades. And it sometimes is a, a single account. In some cases, it's a more um, empirical kind of report. Uh, the subjects that I'll talk about are often apes that are in ape language projects, but I'll also be referring to some apes that um, are wild. And when I do the wild uh, material, it will be restricted to genus pan. So a single slide for Pongo, and in this case, an individual named Chantek, um, who was one of those early pioneers in American Sign Language acquisition, worked with an anthropologist, and just a very, I think, nice but informative anecdote, um, Chantek would use his sign for cat, American Sign Language, um, apparently he was afraid of them, and he would use it um, and basically sign cats were nearby, but people knew that cats were not present. And then he would also feign fear. Gorilla. This is the famous Coco and Penny Patterson. 
Again, a long-lasting relationship, decades of work in acquiring American Sign Language. And when you look at how Coco uses the language when she's not interacting with Penny, um, she can sign to herself, she can sign to her dolls. I like this anecdote about alligators because, again, it sort of shows a symbolic play where Coco is afraid of alligators, even though she's never seen one. But she has these little toy alligators and she sneaks up on her human friends. This is all a kind of pretend, right, to frighten them. And, and the reaction of the friend is supposed to be start, startled and fearful. Going on to genus Pan, and we'll start uh, with a kind of foundational study in American Sign Language, and this is the very famous chimpanzee Washu and her son Lulus, her adopted son, and this is them later in life. Remember that Washo and a set of other chimpanzees learned American Sign Language in a number of contexts, but in this case, we're looking for how she either engaged in symbolic play with toys, bathing her dolls, or using American Sign Language to talk talk to her dolls and or communicate with stuffed animals. Another of her companions, Dar, would place stuffed animals on his side and use the sign for tickle. Now, this is an extended two-slide account of what I'm describing as the mother of all anecdotes, in part because it's really a case history, and it's about Vicky and her mother, her human mother, Kathy Hayes. And Vicky was one of those early pioneers in trying to teach chimpanzees vocal language. It was a failure. Vicky eventually got maybe four words, including the word mama, however it is she produced it. But this extended anecdote really has to do with Vicky's imaginary pull toy. And in some, basically, Vicky creates an imaginary pull toy, um, trailing her arm out behind her with a string, and uses this um, imaginary pull toy repetitively. Um, sometimes she modifies the game, so the, the rope that's pulling the toy gets caught on some plumbing pipes, and then she has to do all of these adjustments to get it free. Or she sits on the toilet and plays with her imaginary toy, which is at the end of the rope. The thing that certainly gets people's attention is what follows is where Vicky continues this behavior, um, gets her toy caught up again, but then gets frustrated, is sitting on the floor, um, quote, as if she's holding a taut cord, and then looks up to her mother and uses her vocal behavior and basically makes a request, and her mother untangles, using a pantomime, untangles the rope and gives it back to Vicky, and Vicky carries off with her toy. Um, shortly thereafter, Kathy Hayes decides she'll join in and invent her own pull toy with a very interesting consequence. Vicky basically fixates at where the toy and the rope should be on the floor, um, and then vocalizes in fear, jumps into her mother's arms, and never plays this game again. Moving on to apes in um, the field, and in this case, um, as I said, chimpanzees. This is a, a relatively recent study from the Kanyawara community in Uganda, um, where we're seeing juvenile chimpanzees, males and females, carrying sticks. They're also carrying rocks, it turns out. But there is a female bias in um, who's carrying the, these objects, 
And there is a video clip on the next slide. We will not be able to see it today, but in case you want to chase it down, because it's a pretty compelling interview with Richard Wrangham. But the the chimpanzees are carrying rocks or sticks um, for periods of time, minutes, hours. They carry them up into trees. They put them in day nests. They make nests for the objects. And the interpretation is that this is either doll play or a form of play mothering. The behavior stops after females give birth. And so far, this is the only community where this pattern of behavior has been observed. Another um, field chimpanzee site um, in far west Africa, the hottest, driest, most open habitat, involves chimpanzees exploiting um, shallow pools when the temperature is extremely high, and as is the humidity. But in addition to basically having pool parties, they often use these pools of water to explore themselves and use sort of this reflective pool, I think, to to kind of investigate themselves. These are climatological data just to show indeed how hot it is. The final field study I want to talk about um, is about bonobos, and this is the site of Wamba. It's directed by Takeshi Furuichi from the University of Kyoto. Um, These are habituated um, bonobos, and the researcher who's been working there, or who did work there for almost three years, um, is Isabel Banke. She's here at a, at a bonobo sanctuary. And her focus of attention was looking at, at the role of play in bonobo society. But here I want to focus on how bonobos use water. So when they have... Um, when they're near water, whether it's running or still, they can do social play in or around water, or they can do solitary play. And Banky observes both adults and um, immatures um, engaging in this. And this particular quote, if the chimpanzee is around still water, quote, they look at their reflection on the surface, sometimes stroking the water slightly as if to observe the resulting ripples. And what I'm hoping we're going to be able to show you is a short clip um, from this field site so you can get a sense of what they do when they're at the water's edge. So I hope you have a sense um, of how at least this bonobo is responding to the opportunity to interact with water. And in your mind's eye, imagine what you would think if a child did the same. So let me just make a few conclusions and remind us that I think I've shown there is some evidence of symbolic play in great apes. The individuals who have shown these kinds of behavior Um, fall into two groups. Um, There were captive apes, um, most of whom were in ape language um, acquisition projects. And the kind of um, symbolic play that they engage in is pretense play, often with people who are emotionally important to them. And they also use American Sign Language uh, and incorporate it into pretense play. When we turn to the wild apes, um, two things emerge. 
we can say that at least chimpanzees are using object play, pretend object play with inanimate objects to show what I'm going to describe as mock parental behavior. And lastly, perhaps um, wild apes show symbolic behavior when they're exploring water. But before I conclude, I want to show two more slides. And this sort of brings us back to the introduction. The New Yorker magazine was first published in February 1925. And this image became its iconic um, go-to. And um, he's an individual described as Eustace Tilly, and he's quite a, quite a fop. You know, he's got a monocle and he's watching a butterfly and he's got a top hat. And then Barry Blitt for this year's anniversary issue does this. But in fact, what he does is something so compelling and what I think this is, is a beautiful example of how the arts and the humanities can show us an example of symbolic play in our own species. And with that, I will thank you very much and wait for questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.